Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, in my act of alcoholism, I was kind of an asshole. I don't know if you ever noticed that. Um, I don't know. Let me think on it. Yes, you were. I I was... A lot. I was... One of the ways in which I was kind of an asshole was I had some control freak in me. Yes. I, You know, the easiest way to think of the control freak, the common control freak nature of an active alcoholic is when we talk and we've we've talked lots of times about the drinking rules the set of parameters that I would place around my own drinking to try to control the uncontrollable to try to control my addiction like I'm only going to drink beer or I'm only going to drink light beer I'm not going to drink during the week I'm only going to drink on the weekend I'm only going to drink after five o'clock I'm going to drink water in between every drink I'm only going to drink wine and beer I'm only going to drink during this short window. I, my favorite, I remember for a while I had, like I could drink beer on Saturdays, but I had to be done drinking beer by three because then I was allowing myself cocktails, uh, liquor from five to seven or something ridiculous like that. So I had from like noon to three to drink beer and then I had to stop and then I could drink vodka from five to seven. And I thought this was... This was me being in control of my of me my drinking. Being an adult, I get to have my beer during the day while I do my yard work and have my cocktails at night. Oh. So that, I mean, and that is just one of the many areas where I would try to exert control. I tried to control all kinds of things relationship-wise, how the money was being spent, how the kids were being disciplined. And it would often cause arguments between you and I. Why are you raising your hand? I just You're sitting to, in front of a microphone just, just talk. I just want to interject. You don't have to like give a list of things that you tried to control. We can just say everything. Okay. Fair. In fact, one of our arguments, you said, if I didn't make decisions in this household, nothing would ever be done. Mm. I remember How that. How did that make you feel? Did that make you feel supported and loved? Yes, very much so. Yeah. Because, you know, anytime I offered a suggestion, it was usually um, brushed aside. Because you had a plan, you had an idea, you had everything planned out. I feel know? like brushed aside, or I would say, why are you asking me? That's that's your decision. Yeah, but then if I didn't ask you about it, then there would be an argument how I didn't, like, converse with you about it. We're how I didn't of, communicate. And I'm using of, air quotes because you would always say, that you cannot over-communicate. Yes. Communication, And I'm like, what? That's just me asking for permission or okay or running it by you. It's just because you want to be in control of it. And I would have been really mad if you said you asking for permission because that would make us sound like we weren't equals. Right. I would be more like, you should call that running it by me. Yeah, and communicate. That's why that was an okay word, I think, because you felt like that was... But in reality, if you didn't ask for permission, I would be an asshole. Or run it by you. I didn't even communicate if it was, with you about things. Even if it was something that, that I had no business weighing in on and it was silly of me to try to control the situation. Yeah. That need for control, it stems from, I really do believe this, the desire to control my alcoholism so that I wouldn't have to call it alcoholism. Control my drinking so that I wouldn't have to call it addiction or alcoholism. And this illusion that if I tried hard enough, I could keep it in control. But like with many things in life, when you're trying to do one thing, you're trying to exert control in one area, it just spills over into the rest of your life and you find that you're trying to exert control everywhere. One of the areas where we both, and for you this was your reaction to my overdrinking, where we both exerted more control or tried to exert more control than would be considered normal, I think, was in the whole area of keeping up appearances. Whether it was making sure the lawn was manicured and the house, you know, looked nice and everything was put away in its place. We both spent a lot of time 
trying to make it so that from the outside, nobody who wasn't intimately involved in our relationship, and since you and I were the only two intimately involved in our relationship, (laughs) try to make it so that someone on the outside would think, oh, these guys, what a great relationship they must have. They're Everything is in its place. They seem to get along. Everything's perfect. And so it's funny. Now, when I find your stuff around the house, which I'm not trying to slam you here, Sherry, but you got a lot of stuff and it's all around the house. There are just various places where I just put it. But back, boy, back when... I was drinking like everything went on your desk. Yeah, like, and it everything. was in a night. It was in a nice pile, so then it would yeah. just be like, like, "F you!" There's all your shit, lady. You know, like that's kind of what it. And then I would walk in and I'd be so reactive to it, like, "God, you're such a jerk! You couldn't have just left my scarf at the dining room table because I'm gonna use it." You know, yeah. like right away, like you know, I had a plan for it and. I know you probably walk around the house going, mm, how long is that tray going to sit there? No, until I, I get it I wrapped. Don't. Until I get it wrapped. I That's honestly don't. You know? I don't care. One of, <laughs> or a Christmas present came for me by Amazon or some shipment company, and it said on the outside of the cardboard box what it was, and I was the one home when it came. So the surprise was blown. Spoiler so alert. So as soon That's as the surprise gift. was blown, as opposed to taking it and either wrapping it or hiding it, you left it in the middle of the dining room for it like the three weeks. In the middle of the dining room. It was, it was off in the, the doorway side. leading to the bedrooms. Well, there, you could get through and you could carry a laundry basket through. So that to me seemed out of the way enough. But, but I had to move it a little bit in the way so I would remember it. And when I had time, the thing since that the was, surprise was blown, the, it doesn't matter, the right? The thing that was funny is if, you know, in the very highly possible chance that I would forget all about it between November 30th and Christmas. I guess I should have taken into consideration. You could have moved it and I would have forgotten it, but it I kept like moving to get around it every day for three weeks. You it's fine. It I'm really excited. It's, I it's hope you enjoy that dream. refrigerator. I love it's a soda stream. It's not a refrigerator. What are you <laughs> that talking about? That would have been funny to envision this big refrigerator. Oh, in box. a way. Yeah. See, it's a soda stream. It wasn't even that large. I love bubbly water, and uh, I'm starting to feel bad about the plastic. Yes. Um, we are, we'd like to welcome our new sponsor to the <laughs> Intoxicated Pocket soda, soda Stream. Mm. Well, we'll see. Let's check it out and see how long it lasts. As much as you We'll like. see if we'll accept that <laughs> as our sponsor. <laughs> yeah. We'll see if we'll take their money. We're very particular. I don't know if you've noticed, listeners, but we're very particular about who we allow to sponsor. We should allow Kleenex to sponsor because we go through a lot of those. And that's about it. So I was a pretty much an asshole control guy. But also, let me just say. Please. In the past, I would have never left that box like that. Right. Because I would have put it away. I would have had it wrapped right away. Partly because you would have been passed out in the evenings a lot more. And I would have escaped to do my chores. Um, whereas now we stay up like teenagers until 11 o'clock at night half the time. And woohoo, big party animals. You know what else but, is funny about that box? <laughs> when I was drinking, do you know how much interest I would have had in a soda stream? <laughs> <laughs> Can this carbonate the flat not, beer? <laughs> if it's not new parts for the kegerator, I'm not interested. <laughs> Oh, you could have made your first... You could have been the founder of, like, the hard seltzers. And that really bothers me, by the way, that they call them hard seltzers. Because, you know, when you have given up drinking alcohol... Yeah. And you are trying to be health conscious, so you don't want to drink soda pop. You don't want to drink... Right. Coke and Pepsi and Mountain Dew. Soda water is your thing. Seltzer is your thing. And, of course, here comes Big Beverage... We're going to take the one thing you have left, uh, uh, mm. beverage-wise, and we're just going to put the word hard in front of it, and we're going to claim it for ourselves. So, well, How do you think all of us lemonade drinkers felt about lemonade? About Mike's yeah. hard lemonade? Yeah. 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 Very ir- irritated, I would think. Yeah. 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 So <sighs> the need to control, apparently it's still here because I'm mad at the, the uh, big yeah. beverage about taking over my seltzer word but it was much worse back when i was drinking (laughs) one of the things that i loved back then when i was drinking and i knew i was a control freak and i knew i was a control freak i loved when i could find a decision that i felt good about giving to you 
Like going to the grocery store and buying the groceries? Yeah, not just... And then you would say, I let you make the decision about, you know... Any of the food. Which day of the week the kids... Oh, I wouldn't say any of the food. There were lots of food conversations about blaming... Shifting the blame on our food intake is what creates your anxiety or weight gain or depression or our problems in the relationship in bedroom. But... Like I'd watch a documentary and decide that... Yeah, but like you would say, you know, like, oh, the kids would go to a summer camp. And I got to choose it, and I, like, asked the grandparents, like, give them an experience. I let you make the decision about the gift or what, you know. Yeah, when that's that's the point. Anytime that it was something that I really didn't care about or didn't care enough about, I don't know how to put that exactly, but anytime I could turn something over completely to you then I would feel like that, you know, gave me some leeway in the other areas where I was a complete control freak asshole. So it would it was really important to me to just give decisions over to you totally so that and I would have no say in them so that I could throw that back up in your face basically later mm-hmm. when you, you know, would be mad at me about trying to control everything. So, and, and honestly, it legitimately made me feel like less of an asshole. So there was that. I, I enjoyed um, turning over decisions to you or not getting involved in decisions. What I didn't understand at the time, that I'm only recently coming to understand, we had a really wonderful discussion about this in our Echoes of Recovery group just earlier this same week. What I really didn't understand is the decision maker owns all the risk. So when I would turn decisions over to you, as opposed to us coming to agreement together as a unit, um, yeah, I felt proud of myself because I was being less of a control freak in this one little area. Here, Sherry, you figure this out. But for you, especially when you're married to someone that's volatile and has mood swings and you never know what's going to affect me in which different way because of the alcohol... You know, I'm basically saying you make the decision and then I may or may not jump down your throat about it later. That had to be hard. Mm-hmm. You hated, I for a long time, when, you know, we had four kids and so we'd get comments a lot, oh gosh, how do you manage four kids? And I would say, oh, we divide and conquer. And there was a lot of truth to that. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd be off doing something with some of the kids and I'd be off doing something with others of the kids. Or like, you know, I would be focused on work stuff because we also work together and you would be focused on taking care of stuff for school. So the divide and conquer is accurate, but I wonder, you, you never liked it when I would talk that way. And is that why is, is this whole idea that the decision maker owns all the risks when I would talk about divide and conquer? Did you hate it because whatever your section of the divide and conquer was, then you were fully responsible for it and I would come back and give you trouble about it later? Um... Well, I guess I felt like the divide and conquer, I didn't like that because I wanted us to be working together. I mean, we we ran a bakery together, and oftentimes I felt like none of it was my bakery because it was all your way. Um, but then More you control would, freak. Yeah. But then you would say, well, you run the house. And I'm like, well, I run the house. I don't know what that necessarily means because, like, on days that you were working at home, you did chores, you know? So I felt like there, the divide and conquer just didn't make me feel like we were a team. I guess I wasn't so much, at that point, I wasn't so much concerned about the idea of that I'm going to get, you know, my my part of the conquer ripped apart by you if you were mad. Because that was, I think, was a, I had given up a lot of things. And I, I, looking back on our relationship and when we were talking with our Echoes group about this, I, I kind of started thinking... Gosh, I think I gave up making plans on this, like, a year into our relationship. It was, like, your 22nd birthday, and I had, you know, given you what I could do as, you know, a young adult that was working, and what I, you know, and we were still in college, like, what I could give you. But what I gave you for a birthday prize, you know, present, that wasn't enough. You wanted it more, so... And then we moved out together and, you know, moved out of state. And the way you handled that move, I just 
decided, you know, I, I just, I guess uh, my decisions aren't good enough. So it control, kind of... More control freak asshole. Yeah. And that was like, even before there was the active alcoholism. So I think like, I just felt, well, my decisions aren't going to be good enough right from the get go. Yeah. So I stopped, yeah. but I know some of the loved ones that are in relationships and married to alcoholics have talked about how they have to be in charge of everything. I wasn't, I mean, I wouldn't say this in a jerkish way. I wasn't allowed the finances from the beginning because we shared accounts and sometimes you had to expense things on personal account and then you had to turn it in. And there was always this like, not in a seedy way, but you know, the managing of the money. And I think you were kind of afraid to show me some of our finances in a way, there were probably times when I was because you were but, worried how I'd react. You know, or... in, in all honesty, you didn't have any interest in that. Yeah, thing. and so I didn't. Sometimes so... I didn't explain what was going on because your eyes would gloss over when I did. You know, as long as everything was going okay, you didn't. Yeah, but I mean, like I just felt like, like when we were first together, mm-hmm. I was like, you know, I worked at the bank where we banked from, and I was like, I can just balance our. Accounts, you know, monthly statements while I was, you know, slow at the bank or whatever. And you, like, just didn't have any interest in that sort of stuff. And So you never felt that there was a risk to you making decisions. And it sounds like you didn't feel that way because there weren't that I many gave decisions up. for you to make. Yeah, because I kind of gave it up because I felt like, well, my decision isn't going to ever please him. It's not going to be good enough. He's going to try to think of something better in a lot of ways. You know, if I were to come up with something. But I do know that once, maybe once I got sober, I guess, yeah, in early sobriety, I feel like, you know, when I would say things like, oh, whatever, you decide, you would say things like, you know, you want a decision partner. You don't want all of the weight of the decision dumped on you. You don't want me to take it over and take it away from you, but you don't want me to... Right. To just ignore the fact that a decision needed to be made either. True. And I also think it was because I was still very uncomfortable. I didn't know what I wanted. Hmm. I feel like I had, you know, like if we were to say, where do you want to go for dinner? I don't know. Where do you want to go? Because I really didn't know, like, what would make you happy. And I had... Well, since we eat out all of two times a year, it was kind of... Bad example. No, I was going to say it was a good example because it's... It was kind of a weighty decision when you're only going out twice a year. You better not blow it. So I guess I feel like I just didn't know what I wanted or I didn't know what you would want. So I was still very hesitant to voice much of an opinion. How do you feel like it is now? Um, Like when it comes to decision making? I feel like most of the time it's much better. Um, You know, sometimes I feel like now because things are so good sometimes I'll, an idea will pop into my mind and I'll kind of spring it on you and you say I wish we could have communicated about <laughs> sorry um, and I'll be like well I, why can't I do my you know and usually you're like okay fine yeah I just you know and you'll go along with it I, but I try to like be more communicative well you know and I think what you're trying to do and what you are doing I think that's what from from our bad experience with decision making being lopsided and uh, not conducive to a healthy relationship to where it is now, and then what we see from other people. I think I think people want a decision partner. I mean, why else do you get married? In, except for to have someone to confide in, whether it's. You know, things that are making you feel good, things that are making you feel bad, or we've got this big thing we've got to figure out. Let's work on it together. And I think often when alcohol gets involved, the decision partner piece goes away. And you get either an HFA who's a CFA, <laughs> high functioning alcoholic who's a control freak asshole. See, I, uh-huh. I just, just did saying, that all in I my was head. I trying to figure out what a CFA was. Yeah. An HFA who's a CFA, or you get someone who just abdicates all decisions and says, I don't want any part of it. I'll be in the basement drinking. Mm-hmm. And either way, that's just not what you're looking for. Right. It's not, it's not, doesn't lead to a healthy relationship. Right. Cause sometimes, you know, you, your opinion you think is good and you talk and you bounce ideas off of each other and you know, then it, it helps to work it out. And 
you know, sometimes they're related to the kids and driving things around. And so you have to have conversations about those sort of things instead of just like, you make a decision, you know. I wouldn't have liked that either. I wouldn't yeah. have liked all of it to be left in my lap because that isn't fair. And, and that happens quite often in an alcoholic relationship. And when the loved one of the alcoholic is forced to make all the decisions... That, this is another word that was used during that discussion that you and I are referencing from our Echoes of Recovery group that leads to a lot of overfunctioning. The loved one, the spouse, who is forced to make all these decisions because the alcoholic partner is having nothing to do with you know, the, the family and the, the running of the household. They get so used to making all these decisions that they, they just keep going and going and and, you know, control almost becomes an addiction of itself. And so when we talk about overfunctioning, that's when the the spouse of the alcoholic starts trying to control everything and trying to, you know, make make rules of their own about when, where, and how the drinker is going to drink. And, um, and, and just, you know, uh, I don't know if... Uh, I mean, I know it's not healthy, right? It's, it's you know, you've got to work in the morning, so you've got to do this, and you've got to go to bed at this time, and you've got to set your alarm, and what are you going to wear? And I, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but the, that over-functioning becomes debilitating for the spouse themselves, and it doesn't do anything good for the alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the alcoholic being coddled that way, um, I mean, maybe it gets them to work on time, but... But maybe it doesn't, and it certainly causes lots of resentment and tension in the relationship. So I think overfunctioning is a really good word. I'm very cautious about using the word codependent or codependency yeah. after um, the podcast that we did with Dr. Weiss a few weeks ago. But you know, those are the traits of yeah. codependency that that overfunctioning, that need for control all the time. So. It seems that that is um, not just unhealthy to the relationship, but un- unhealthy for the the person who's doing the overfunctioning. Right, and I know that oftentimes when we've heard um, the spouse talk about their loved one and their overfunctioning, they've often used the term "I'm their mother now." Yeah, you know. So then that changes that dynamic in the relationship that's supposed to be a romantic and sexual. Can you believe I'm talking about this? I can't. You brought up sex. I did. Um, some of that sexual and romantic relationship and love that you're supposed to have with your with your partner. And then it's a different type of relationship. So then it's adding a whole other layer that you have to kind of learn how to, like, in recovery, work on your relationship that way, where you're not the mothering, and then they're not looking for you to mother them still, and you're not feeling weird and gross, and you can go back to being romantic partners in the relationship, and and get and also I think it's a resentment thing, is because I we have children, I don't need another child, I didn't marry a child to do this with, so I think that's a really good point. I think I don't know, maybe it's because of testosterone, I'm not sure, but the the male, usually the drinker, the husband, tends to be able to switch back and forth a lot more easily than the wife. So, I mean, I might be a sobbing puddle and you're over-functioning and you are, you know, making sure that I'm surviving for some period of time and I'm pathetic and crying and talking about how, how I'm worthless and how bad things are. And I can turn around in a matter of minutes and want to have sex. Mm-hmm. With you, the same person that I've been crying to, but I think for you, for the, I mean, and sobriety probably has a lot to do with it. It's probably not just a gender thing, but for you, not only because you're female, but also because you've been the caretaker and you've been sober through this whole thing, for you to go from that mothering role to finding me physically attractive takes a long time. Because there is a difference between, I think, the caretaking role persona that we have inside us versus, um, you know, the romantic relationship partner, because those are totally different feelings and you can't, I don't think you can switch like that because you're like, I'm just been taking care of you. Right. Making, and, and now I, cause in that romantic side of it, you need someone 
to be taking care of you in ways and to being, you know, equal. So I think that strong and confident, right? And yeah, I mean, not not arrogant, but confident, like, yeah, and a partner and someone who's looking after your needs, you know, that are not just sexual needs. So I think definitely flipping that switch is really hard in and into sobriety and it goes well into sobriety hard hard for you the, hard the for spouse, the spouse the, who's the, the sober loved one yeah who's been the caretaker because i mean you've witnessed and we've heard other stories for the alcoholic it's not hard at all right you can flip and on because, a switch and there's so much resentment about it like you can get a little shot of side boob when you're changing your shirt and uh, be off to the races that's all is that a mic drop and then we're at I don't know. You're just staring know. at me now like this was going well and now it's not. Yeah, because you're just controlling the situation. Oh. Talking over me. Sorry. No. <laughs> you're right. Funny. So anyhow, Matt, continue. <laughs> yeah, let's see what you got next on your notes over there. Oh, hey. you don't have any. <laughs> That's okay. It's okay. I'm sure you'll have lots to say about the next topic. I want to talk. I don't want to switch. I don't feel like this is a big switch because to me, these things are related. I want to talk about relapse around the holidays. Relapse is very common around the holidays. I feel like this year, you know, Mm. this is, I guess, the third holiday season. It's my fifth holiday season sober, but it's the third holiday season where we've been actively participating with others in the recovery world. Um, through our Echoes of Recovery group and our Shout Sobriety group to try to get and maintain sobriety and, and deal with the aftermath of alcoholism. And I guess I I spent less time, I don't know, warning people or worried about people going into the holidays this year because I feel like in the past I've overblown that. And then, of course, what happens, I feel like lots of people are going through huge chaos and turmoil Mm-hmm. Right now, as we are in the heart of the holiday season, as a result of relapse, you know, and and as somebody else put it, emotional relapse, because it's just so hard. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, let's talk about why the holidays are such a common cause of relapse. You know, for me, there is the festive nature of the holidays. I like Christmas. I like Halloween, I like Thanksgiving, I like Christmas, I like all of them. I don't really care about New Year's. I mean, when we were younger, we went out for New Year's, but even when I was drinking, I didn't want to be on the road with a bunch of drunks and... Yeah. I don't know. We we just never did much for New Year's. But I love those other three holidays and the festive nature of Christmas for me was a huge uh, problem in early sobriety. I loved to drink eggnog when I was drinking, and it would be basically rum, sometimes whiskey, but mostly rum with just enough eggnog to make it a milky color. But oh, I love to drink eggnog. And so years into my sobriety, when Christmas would come around and I would think about eggnog, I would think about that flavor, not the flavor of just pure eggnog. Which now I like. I rather like. It's kind of sweet, but I rather like, it's like just eggnog. And it doesn't make me wish that there was rum or whiskey in there the way it did for a long time. Mm-hmm. But So that's a part of it. Just the festive nature of the holidays creates a lot of relapses. Memories and triggers. You know, we, we've talked a lot about how you can not drink on a Friday and a Saturday. And you can do that week after week after week. And eventually... You'll stop being triggered to drink on a Friday and a Saturday after a few months. But then the holidays come around and you haven't been through Christmas that whole time when you've been sober on those Fridays and Saturdays. And it's a whole different ball game. And people don't realize that. They think, what? I've been sober for nine months. Christmas won't be hard. Yes, it will. You might have been sober for nine months, but this is the first time you've tried to be sober at Christmas. And in your memory bank, you have all these memories of drinking during Christmas Neighborhood parties, work parties, just getting sloshed in front of the Christmas tree, whatever it is. And those memories are going to haunt you and trigger you in at the holiday time. And so I think that's another big trigger and big reason for relapse around the holidays. 
But probably the biggest one is, as much as I love the holidays, I have to admit it, right? The holidays are stressful. You're probably spending time with extended family, which creates some level of stress. You love your family, but there's still, you know, uncomfortable conversations and pressures that you haven't been on the front of your mind. And then all of a sudden you're forced to face them. Um, you know, relationships, strife from the past that you've got to work through, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And there is, you know, the money stress of the holidays, trying to buy Christmas presents and you've, you've still got to eat and pay rent and pay the heating bill for a normal month. But on top of that, you've got to come up with cash for presents and that puts stress on people. And so, I mean, I think the stress around the holidays is just ridiculous and it's a huge contributing factor to the relapses that we see during the holidays. I was kind of thinking about this because like you mentioned or just a moments ago that you really kind of highlighted the relapse and I feel like last year that was the COVID Christmas, the first COVID Christmas. Right, right. And I think we were kind of used to lockdown. We hadn't gotten the vaccine yet, whatever. I'm wondering if maybe this year is a little more stressful because we had the taste of normalcy and that potential for normalcy coming in. And now we've got these two variants and it's kind of this still weird, awkward. Maybe last year there wasn't as many of our groups that, you know, people in the groups that didn't relapse or out there in the general population because maybe this year they're faced with those family members that they have to go see that they haven't seen. Oh, yeah. Last, last Christmas it was pre-vaccination, so, so people lots still of people weren't getting did, together. Yeah, so lots of people. So I'm wondering if maybe even those sort of things, just that that burden of, like, you mentioned it, um, you know, that being with extended family and some of, and maybe they're in the sober part of it and the last time they saw Christmas together in 2019 or the winter holidays, I guess we always call it Christmas, but there's lots of other winter holidays. Right. But, you know, some of that, like, that's adding more stress because now it's like, oh my gosh, like, I was a drunken a-hole in, yeah, 2019, in 2019 and now all this has come, you know, all of this, whatever your situation is, if it's just more stress, because I think for both sides of the relationship, that would be stressful. Because you'd be playing, because the sober one, or the spouse, who's always been the sober one, is kind of umpiring, like refereeing. And let's face it, for some of those relationships, people that you're really close with, you've already addressed everything that came with the rock bottom and then the sobriety. But for lots of those, you know, the uncles and the grandmas and whatever... You, you're right. You might have last seen them 2019 when you're, when you or your spouse was a drunk idiot and you haven't spoken about any of this mm-hmm. in two years yeah. because it's uncomfortable. And now you're supposed to just sit around the Christmas tree and everything's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Super stressful. Yeah. And, and relapse stress on causing. both. I mean, uh, I'm well, just thinking everybody. Absolutely. I just remember thinking about like, it wasn't so much winter holidays that we spent with our, um, families but the Indianapolis 500 we would always go to Indiana and that's where my family is and I remember sitting there being like referee thinking oh my god the last time we were here Matt was a drunken a-hole and you know like how's he gonna act this year in front of my sister and my mom and whatever you know Mm. so that was how did it go oh god so many times it was many years it was back and forth back and forth yeah. But it would just cause me a level of stress. Like refereeing and trying to make both sides, uh, you know, I was caught in the middle of making both sides happy and trying to give enough information to satisfy but not give too much to feel like I was breaking trust between you and I. That must have really sucked. Yeah. Do you feel more comfortable in those situations now? Yes, yes. Good. I feel much better. Because I don't have anything to, like, be hiding or anything to referee. And if, I don't know, if there's a conversation, you're not drunk, and then, so you're not pissing people off more because you're being a drunken, mouthy idiot, or you're, like, listening. Drunken, mouthy idiot. Or you're going to... Control freak asshole? Drunken, mouthy idiot. That's even better. Not like like you were, but, you know, you're not, you're going to be respectful and listen to their opinion about things. Yeah. And you're going to have control over your emotions and your reactions and yourself, so I didn't, so, you know, you're truly being who you are if there was a 
situation that was adding conflict. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I don't have and to referee who I that. I am. I can bite my tongue a little better. Yes, than I... but also it's not the alcohol talking. Right. Well, the so, alcohol doesn't let you bite your tongue. Yeah. So I don't have to referee that. I don't have to tamper down who you are because you're being really genuinely mad. You know. Like it or not. Yeah. Little of both, probably. <laughs> That's what I say. <laughs> yeah. So the way this these two topics tie together, we're talking about relapses around the holidays and how common they are. But we spent the majority of this episode talking about decision-making and the stress of decision-making and how it doesn't feel good to carry the risk of all the decision-making when your alcoholic loved one kind of checks out of decision-making. And, you know, we, we should say, too, not just alcoholic loved one, but often that happens in early sobriety. There is definitely a retreating process for a lot of people in early sobriety because the depression doesn't go away just because the alcohol does. So there's often people who, with alcoholics, who when we get sober in early sobriety, we withdraw from the family and we're licking our wounds and trying to figure it out and focused on our recovery and all we can think about is sobriety and we're learning all this stuff and we're just still not participating in the family. So often the decisions are still left to the loved one, to the spouse to make. So those are the two topics. Here's how they tie together. During the holidays... That normal decision pressure that the spouse is under all the time when they are married to a alcoholic or alcoholic in recovery who doesn't participate in the decision making, that's there. But then you got all the holiday decisions on top of that. Mm-hmm. And especially in a season that's full of relapse, you know, there are decisions like, oh, we were supposed to be with my family on Christmas afternoon. Guess what? you've decided to start drinking again. So we're not going to do that. So now... Or you're you're, not going and I have to take the kids and explain. But so you're not only impacting yourself and the alcoholic, you're impacting the kids, you're impacting the grandparents, you're impacting all of these people who maybe only see each other a few times a year. And the weight of those decisions, I mean, I just can't even imagine the burden of those decisions on the the one who's forced to make all decisions. Then you've got the alcoholic who knows that their drinking, their relapse is what's caused these weighty decisions to need to be made. And that just, you know, when they're not invited to be a part of the decision or maybe they check out of the decision, just piles the shame on. And nothing leads to relapse like shame. So it's just such a devastating cycle. I We, we heard... Um, in one of the conversations we had this last week, we heard about um, someone who was in early sobriety who had in, thought it through and intentionally said to his spouse, you know, I don't want to do the big family thing with the extended family. I'm just out of rehab. I don't want to do that this year. And I guess, you know, we don't necessarily know the exact reason that that person in recovery chose, but I applaud the hell out of them because, because there's all this stress. I mean, you're probably going to go into a situation where you've done things in front of this extended family that you're embarrassed about. And in really early sobriety, reliving that shame is only going to put pressure on you to drink again. And so this, in this particular case that I'm talking about, and I know I'm not giving specifics. We're just trying to protect the person who shared this in confidence with us. But the alcoholic said, yes, I would like to do the immediate family stuff. I want to be with my wife and my kids on Christmas, but I don't want to go to grandma's house and see all the cousins and uncles. And and I'm sure that the cousins and uncles and grandma don't understand because nobody understands this disease. Mm-hmm. And they think that this person who was an alcoholic asshole is just a sober asshole now because he, he won't participate in the family. But it's a really, really wise decision to stay out of that shame cycle and stay out of the stress cycle because those are the things that trigger relapse in early sobriety. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you and I, I guess in some ways we're lucky because we live a thousand miles from our nearest relatives. And so we aren't under constant pressure to do big family outings and big family occasions. And it's a lot easier for us to, to or it was a lot easier for us to separate when I was in early sobriety. Now it's, 
frankly, just kind of all most, mostly not all, but mostly downside that we're so far away from our family because we don't Mm -hmm. feel the shame cycle or the pressure from being with family. But when you do, when you've got just raw memories that, you know, the wound isn't even scabbed over yet from the alcoholic incident. And then you try to rush back into that, the likelihood of relapse, or at least just feeling terrible about yourself. And like you said, as the spouse, as the loved one, the refereeing and the trying to, oh, I just can't even imagine what that's like to try to, I mean, you must, it must be this hypervigilance, right? You're paying attention to everyone in the room and making sure nobody's going to say something that's going to upset this person. And, um, you know, like you said, I'll tell you this much, but I'm not going to tell you everything because you don't need to know everything and you'll throw some stuff up in his face if I do. And Mm -hmm. sounds awful. So, yeah. totally understand why these relapses happen. The, uh, the the pressure of the normal decisions coupled with the pressure of the holiday decisions, it's just not fair. And so, whatever you can do to simplify, peaceify, calmify the holidays, and stay away from the stress, pressure, and shame, mm-hmm. uh, that's definitely the better. What do you think? I've just been rambling. Um, I started thinking about like your first holiday season sober and I realized, and it wasn't a control thing. You started doing the Christmas cards. You've always written a Christmas letter and it's very funny, a family Christmas letter. But I think because they were something you could do in the evening, that would have been your drinking time. And because you were going through your first sober season, that's when you took over doing the Christmas cards and kind of filling in for a lot of my stuff. So now I feel like, I feel like right now I do nothing for Christmas. You decorate the whole house. But you like are, you like have filled in a lot of these gaps. Well, let's talk. That would be things that I would be doing late at night or later at night after you had passed out and the kids had gone to bed because they were younger and whatever. And I'd be staying up late to like, you know, do the gifts and address the Christmas cards and I know that you always worried that I was like not getting them out early enough. Um, you know, well, I, but I think that it was nice that you started to do these things. So you'd have something to do that you could participate in and it would keep your mind off of drinking, but you were aware enough that you were doing something to be helpful and to keep your mind off of. It was at first, it was very important that it was something that I didn't do when I was drinking. When we, part of sobriety and recovery, part of not just being a dry drunk who's white knuckling it and trying not to drink all the time, is to replace old patterns, old habits with new ones. It's not enough just to stop doing the old habits. You have to replace the old habits with new ones. Mm -hmm. And so you are spot on in your analysis. And I don't think we've ever talked about this before. So I don't think so. I think it just literally popped up in my brain. I just kind of figured this out, but I think you're right. Just addressing, I mean, that's what, I didn't write like a special message to every individual like you used to do in the Christmas cards. So my Christmas cards are way crappier than yours ever were. Well, you, you homemade the Christmas cards for a long time. That's why you'd always get stressed that I wouldn't get them all out in time. And you'd finish about April, but you would homemade (laughs) all the Christmas cards. It was crazy. But, but, um, so yeah, just just blindly, I got an address book, I got a pen, I got all these envelopes. Just addressing Christmas cards in the evening during the witching hour when I w- wanted to have eggnog with mostly rum in it was... Rumnog. That's what she called Rumnog. Was really, really therapeutic mm-hmm. from the standpoint of replacing bad habits with new good ones. Mm-hmm. You're spot on. It's It worked very much like the reading did for me in the evenings when I would read memoir from alcoholics who had made it into sobriety and I would relate to those books and it would just soothe me. It would just make the cravings go away and listening to Christmas music and writing addresses on envelopes did that same thing for me. It, it was a big part of my getting through that first Christmas sober and now I just enjoy it. Like like I said, replacing bad habits with good ones. It's a habit for me now. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't 
there's stuff I can't explain, and that's one of them. And we don't talk much about, well, we I, we've never talked about me addressing Christmas cards because it sounds so ridiculous. But to, it was to something say, this you, was like an important said. part of my sobriety. What? What? But it addressing was, Christmas like cards, you said, it was stupid. something that you didn't do. You know, that was an alcohol-related activity. Yes. But also, I think you were coming out of that selfishness because you'd been practicing how to become a full-time sober person for 10 years. So I think that you... 10 years that I kept relapsing. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that you were practicing on being better at sobriety and reading, even when you weren't... Because you were reading memoirs before you were even sober. Yeah. So I think you had some tools in your belt that were going to help and part of that was like you knew that you needed to replace some habits but also you were not quite as selfish as some of the you know as in early early sobriety so you were like how can I be helpful what can I do that alleviates some of the stress and to build you know yeah I think you're giving me too much credit honestly I mean I can look back on it now and say that was really important because it was something that I didn't do back when I was drinking and there was no tie between addressing Christmas cards and drinking rum nog. That's really important. I know that now. At the time, I just, you know, I was the evening. I was clutching to anything I could to keep me from drinking. Or eating. The Christmas cards needed to be written. And, I mean, I guess I was trying to be kind of nice. Yeah. But... I mean, I think more than that, it was, you know, a lot of alcoholics and and sober alcoholics talk about boredom. I never consciously felt bored. There was just too much chaos in my brain going on all the time. But in a way, I guess it was, it was to fight off the kind of idleness that could lead to drinking. Mm -hmm. And I guess I felt... I think it's really important. I'm glad you brought it up. Well, But I... I didn't plan it. Like, I don't want to give myself any okay. credit for planning Well, and I want to say, like, for my part, too, I was kind of, like, reluctant. Like, why does he want to do this? Am I not doing it right? Am I not doing it fast enough? Is he going to be right? So I was a I little, like, well, you know. But then you would, like, walk sometimes back well, I was a control mansion. freak, so, so you're, I, I'm you're taking com- something over from Yeah, me. yeah. So at first I was a little suspicious and, like, well, I must not be doing that right either. But then I realized... You know, towards the end of that first season, because you would also sometimes, because you often did walks too, um, you would just go out for like a walk. And so you would take a stack of cards that were stamped and you walked them five or six blocks to this mailbox and you would drop them off and come back. So, and there wasn't a liquor store on the way that I, or a, you know, I mean, I guess you could have went to the convenience store. But I didn't worry about that because I knew that wasn't your drinking style to get those little shooters. But, I just knew, like, at the end of the season, I was like, I, that, I think, really kind of helped him. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. It did. It did. So, so there. There's a unexpected tip from this podcast episode. If you're an alcoholic in early sobriety, or if you're married to an alcoholic in early sobriety, that alcoholic in early sobriety should start addressing Christmas cards. Holiday cards. That's going to be your new job. I mean, even so saying it out loud, it sounds ridiculous. But, but I'm telling I think you, the it, point it is... It was trying, something different. Yeah, something different that you that was not alcohol-related. Yeah. And and certainly something different that was, that was not... That would not lead to transference, right? I wasn't going to transfer my addiction to Christmas card addressing because... You're not going to address Even though I do kind of like it, uh, you reach the point where oh, that was enough of that. Yeah, it's not like the kind of thing that you're gonna. Yeah, it's nothing that's transferable. I got all the Christmas cards done. Can I start at the Easter cards now? <laughs> that's never come from my mouth. He noticed you skipped right over Valentine's Day. And, well, see, we gotta send St. Patrick's cards. <laughs> Do we send St. Patrick's cards? Nope. It's a once a year thing. Yeah. So if any of this applies to you, and hey, if you're uh, uh, um, ongoing listener to the Intoxicated Podcast. Hopefully all of this applies to you. We hope you've gotten a few tips from this, little little nuggets, uh, at least something that you can relate to. You're definitely not alone. As I mentioned, a lot of the content of this particular episode came from discussions that we had 
just a few days ago in our Echoes of Recovery group. So we know that you're not alone because um, there are lots of people out there talking with us about this. So if you uh, fall into that category of resonating with some of this, the discussion points, just know you're not alone and it can get better. I got to tell you, I'm having a pretty good time this holiday season, Jerry. I mean, okay, we can mention my my current annoyance. These streaming services that we, you know, we we got rid of our cable and went to all these streaming Cut services. The and uh, now they've got these mandatory ads that you can't fast forward through even when you've DVR'd a program. I'm pretty annoyed. I likes me my Christmas movies. But other than that, we're having a pretty glorious holiday season mm-hmm. free from contention and control freakishness and there doesn't seem to be any decision fatigue and stress about carrying all the risk of all the decisions so if you if what we talked about today uh, rings the bell for you it can't you're not alone and it can get better um, and like we always say sobriety doesn't fix anything but it is a prerequisite we're in our fifth consecutive sober Christmas and this one's way better than even our fourth and way, way better than the ones before it. So just keep going, keep trying, keep working, and it can get better. Thanks for listening. Sherry, thanks for being here and talking about this with me. Yeah, you're welcome. Any other nuggets that you've thought of that uh, I didn't bother to bring up? I like that Christmas card one. No, no. I can't think of anything now. All right. No, I had one epiphany, so... It was good. Or two. All right, let's go watch Krampus together. (laughs) Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.